Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 7. This is our Vertigo teaching series. Two weeks, we're looking at the chapter 7 of Romans, The War Within. The title of this weekend's message is Before Christ. One of the most important books on the shelf of any psychologist is known as the DSM. That's short for the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. One of the first things you have to do if you're working with a client is come up with a diagnosis. And it's often very difficult because we all have a natural resistance against hearing hard truths about ourselves. For example, one entry in the DSM is a narcissistic personality disorder. And here are the evidences that somebody might suffer that. Listen up. A grandiose sense of self-importance, somebody who believes he or she is special. This is somebody who rarely acknowledges mistakes. This is somebody who requires excessive admiration, somebody who has a sense of entitlement, somebody who is often envious of others or wants other people to be envious of them, and somebody who displays secret or open pride or arrogance. Turn to the person next to you and say, wow, that sounds just like you (laughs) and me. That, that sound, did you, I read that to my wife and she goes, that sounds like you. <laughs> I said, well, I was thinking the same thing. It sounds like you. Guess what? It sounds like all of us because uh, that is the fallen human condition that we are narcissistic and we have this personality that is really focused on ourselves. We're self-centered. We're self-absorbed. It's the sinful nature. It's the sinful nature, and uh, it's really where the war takes place within our hearts and our lives. And uh, theologian John Stott put it this way. He said that the essence of sin, the essence of sin is me substituting myself for God And then the essence of salvation would be God substituting himself for me. And so it's it's really quite interesting as we kind of dive into this this topic on the war within. In fact, all of life, and here's the thesis statement for the next couple weeks, all of life is a battle between two selves. I think our world kind of understands this. I don't know if you've seen um, those window... Uh, sticker decals, it's, it's depicted, on, depicted on those windows, sticker decals that uh, the provocative angel and uh, demon woman, how many have ever seen that before? Okay. Where do, you, where do you get that? Because my wife was wanting to buy one of those for her car. <laughs> She's going to put it on the outside of her bumper, her, her window sticker that says Desert Breeze Community Church. You know, it's interesting, I actually did see a... Uh, I hope that you don't have that on your car, but uh, if you do, uh, the ushers are removing it right now uh, from your car. But uh, I actually saw, I saw a, uh, uh, someone that had that on their car, and they had the uh, church logo right in the middle of it. 
and I won't tell you what uh, church that is, <coughs> CCV, but uh, <laughs> I, I told you they weren't a very good church. I'm kidding. That's a joke. That's a bad joke. But it was just, it was really interesting. Uh, I just thought, wow, that's, that's really unique to have that uh, angel and demon, very provocative, and then, and then have, it, have your uh, church logo right there in the middle. That's really interesting. And I, I think the world understands this battle. And uh, I think you probably understand it too. And in fact, this whole chapter is about, about this war. All of life is a battle between two selves. But there's a difference between the war before you become a Christian and the war after you become a Christian. See, the war, the war before you become a Christian is a war that you cannot win. But the war after you make a commitment to Christ is a war that you cannot lose. And we, we kind of struggle with that. Those that think that they can win the war oftentimes are before Christ and think, hey, we can win this war. And in reality, you can never win that war. But those that have committed their life to Christ often feel like, man, this is not a winnable war. But I'm here to tell you, yes, it is. So it's kind of important to know, I mean, which side of the battle are you on? Are you before Christ or have you committed your life to Christ? And do you understand that this is a winnable war? And so we're going to look at this. And so today we're going to look uh, at the war before Christ. And, um, and then next week we'll look at the war after Christ. And I think that uh, Romans 7 gives us really some great insight. And when I tackled this a few months ago and I looked at this, I didn't think it was going to be that difficult, and then as I got into it the last couple of weeks, man, it's, it's a difficult uh, text. It's really difficult, so you're going to have to hang with me on this. I think God wants to speak to us, no doubt about it, and reveal some really important truths to our lives as it relates to this war. So let's begin with a word of prayer, then I'll set the text up, we'll read it, and then we'll work through our notes. Let's pray. Let's take a moment here. God, we, there's nothing... There's absolutely nothing, nothing that we want more, that I want more than, than to know you, to walk with you, to experience you in my life. I know that there are many others that are here with that, that same heart attitude. God, we've come here today to, to encounter you, and God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. I can't help but think, God, that there are those here that maybe their, their conscience is, is screwed on too tight that, man, they just have a lot of guilt and shame that just rules their life. And God, I pray that they would begin to see your forgiveness more clearly this morning, your unbelievable love, that the fears of their life would be, would be chased away by your presence. And, and yet there are others of us who are, our conscience is kind of screwed on too, too, too light. It's, it's, we just, our, our hearts are filled with pride. We're not even aware of the wake of destruction we, we, live, we leave behind us. And so, God, God, convict us. Help us to see that through the cross we are all more sinful than we ever dared to think. But at the same time, we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. God, work a humble confidence in our lives this morning through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. <clears throat> Let me set this text up a little bit, kind of give you the overview. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 13, first half. Next week, we'll look at verses 14 uh, to the end of the text, which is verse 25. 
In Romans 7, 7 through 13, it's the second part of what we're going to be reading this morning. <clears throat> we have the depiction of the battle we cannot win. This is the battle before Christ. And then there's something that happens in verse 14. You can read this on your own. We won't get there. We'll just get to verse 13. But in verse 14, there's a, there's a change in tenses. And so verses 7 through 13, it's past tense, and it's before Christ. That's the idea that you get. But then in verse 14 on, you get this present tense. Uh, he's talking in the present tense, this battle that is currently happening in his life as he's pinning these words, the apostle Paul and so verses 7 through 13, we have the depiction of the battle we cannot win. In uh, verses 14 through 25, which we, we will be looking at next week, we have the depiction of the battle we cannot lose. But in verses 1 through 6, the first part of our text we're going to be reading this morning, we have how to make the transition, how we make the transition from the battle that we cannot win to the battle that we cannot lose and, and there's a lot of other explanation as it relates to that. Uh, you'll also see in the text that there's a change in situation. Verses 7 through 13 talk about sin killing him, and he's dead, which is truly the experience of those that don't know Christ. The Bible says that those that don't know Christ are dead spiritually. They're actually blind spiritually. And so he, he describes that in verses 7 through 13. And then in, from verse 14 on, you see this ongoing struggle with sin in which he refuses to surrender. You also see in verses 14 through 25, the second part we'll be reading next week, he delights in the law. But you're not going to get a hint of that in the section we're reading today. So I, I wanted to give you a little background so you, you know that I'm not just pulling this out of the sky. Truly, as you study this text, there's a distinction between the war before Christ and the war after Christ. And... Uh, and the transition, how we make that transition is found in verses 1 through 6. So let me begin reading, and then we'll go through and unpack our notes here this morning. Starting at verse 1, chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brother, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, I want us to read this next verse aloud and together. If you don't understand verse 6, you're not going to understand Christianity. And uh, if you don't get anything I get, you've got to understand verse 6. This is the heart of Christianity, verse 6. Let's read it together aloud. You ready? Nice and loud. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Pretty heavy duty, isn't it? I mean, when you, you really have to kind of dive into it. What in the world is he talking about here? Let me continue on. 
So that's how you make this transition from before Christ to after Christ, but here's now the battle before Christ. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. This is the word of the Lord. Pretty heavy text, pretty hard to to navigate through that. Let me help you kind of understand this. We're going to look at two things, the battle we cannot win And then we're going to look at how to make the transition, number of fill-in-the-blanks there under each of those. So the first one is the battle we cannot win. Here's your first fill-in-the-blank. We are all more sinful than we can see or want to admit. We are all more sinful than we can see or want to admit. Verse 9, if you keep your Bible open, I'll refer back to various places so that you can kind of unpack this. Verse 9, he says, I was once alive apart from the law. What was he saying? The law meaning God's word or the Ten Commandments, but he's saying, you know what? I felt really good about myself. (laughs) As long as I didn't go to church or read my Bible or pray or look into the full-length mirror of God's word and see my true spiritual condition. That's what he's saying, basically. I felt pretty good. I looked pretty good. I'm not so bad. And... uh, it's interesting, as you work through this, the more he began to see the commandments, and particularly the commandment that, that got a hold of him was this, the, the, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, covetousness, and that's what nailed him. Let me give you a few uh, verses here. You don't need to turn there. Let me just kind of walk you through some of these. They're the cross-references that oftentimes I'll put beside each of the different points you can study on your own later. Sometimes I'll look at them in here, and sometimes I won't, and I'll let you look at them on your own as you work through the growing notes. It says in Jeremiah 17, 9, let me ask you this. I always... I, I can't help but crack up oftentimes because I hear people on these crazy shows and they'll ask them, well, what made you want to pick this person over this other person or, you know, make this decision? And people will often say what? That I just kind of went with my heart. I made the decision based on what my heart was telling me. <laughs> and I always laugh because it tells us in Jeremiah seventeen nine that our hearts are what? Are deceitfully wicked. <laughs> oh, good choice. Yeah, right on. Bad choice. Bad choice when you're going with your heart because your hearts are deceitfully wicked, the Bible says. And, uh, and that's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. It says, listen to this, Psalm 36, 1 and 2. It says, the wicked, the wicked has no fear of God before his eyes. Let me ask you this. Do you have fear of God before your eyes? In other words, is there a life-altering awe and wonder in your heart right now as it relates to who God is, 
his beauty, glory, splendor, and what he's done for you. To be quite honest with you, oftentimes I don't have that in my life. I'm, I'm pretty cavalier and casual about my relationship with God. So that verse in itself is, is convicting to me. And it probably should be convicting to you because I would doubt it that very often you really truly have a fear of God. And in fact, it says here, the wicked has no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to, de- to detect or hate sin. Luke 16, 14 through 15, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you are ones, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Let me ask you this. If you were to ask the average American when they die, if they were going to heaven, how would they respond, you think? Would most of them say, Yes. Would you guys agree with that? Most would say, yeah. In fact, most of the research that's been done out there, the surveys, most people would say, hey, when you die, because you're going to die, will you spend all eternity in heaven or hell? And most Americans would say, heaven. And then if you're asked why, what would their response be? Because I am, I'm basically a good person. What does the Bible say about that? Is anyone basically a good person? Yeah, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Not only that, it tells us this. This is what's interesting, too. It's in 1 John 1.8. If we think that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So even if you cop an attitude that you got it all together, the Bible said, ah, you're deceived. Because you don't. You don't. And, and oftentimes, because we, we are deceived, we kind of think more highly of ourselves than, um, than what we should. And oftentimes, it's based on a, on a con, kind of a comparison basis. You ever notice that? We kind of compare ourselves. You know, I'm, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like those people, or I'm not like that, or like I haven't killed anybody. It's like, that's not a very high moral standard there, okay? So, probably don't want to use that one. You know, isn't that interesting? It's one of the reasons why I like hanging out with you guys. I feel really good about myself when I'm with you. I feel like a saint. That's not very nice, is it? And actually, uh, if you do feel better about yourself when you're around certain people, then the basis of your feeling good about yourself is flawed. You're out of touch with your own wickedness and evilness that's within your own heart. You're deceived, and it's based on some kind of comparison system. For all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you don't think you have sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. We're going to talk more about that as it relates to the battle after Christ next week and really looking at our hearts and seeing that, because actually, the closer you get to Christ, the more wicked you see that your heart really is. And so typically, I can always tell people that are not getting close to God is because they come off with a lot of pride and arrogance and and all kinds of other things that, rule our, that typically rule our lives, really a, a self-centeredness and a self-absorption. We are all more sinful than we can see or want to admit. Here's the next one. The law cannot save us, but it can and must show us that we need to be saved. There is no way, there is no way that you can ever earn or achieve a right standing before a holy, righteous God. The Bible's very clear about that. 
And this is what Paul is coming to terms with. The law cannot save us, but it can and must show us that we need to be saved. Verse 7, second part of verse 7, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then in verse 8, he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. So as long as I stay away from church or stay away from the Bible, I feel pretty good about myself. But, but when I started looking into the law of God's Word, I began to realize I am really messed up. I need a lot of help. In fact, James 2.10 says that even if you violated the law in one place, you violated the whole thing. Galatians 3.21 through 24 tells us that the purpose of the law is to be, uh, is to really uh, guide us to Christ ultimately. Next uh, thought on your notes, sin is not just uh, behavioral acts of the will, but more importantly, attitudinal loves of the heart. Sin is not just behavioral acts of the will, but more importantly, uh, attitudinal loves of the heart. The essence of sin is to love anything more than you love God. I think this is where, uh, where oftentimes we all fall prey to thinking that we're really good is because we kind of do it on this checklist of external behavior, behavioral modification kind of thing. And I think that's where Paul was. He's saying, hey, you know what? I look pretty good. When I look at the Ten Commandments, you know, I'm looking pretty good. Love God, you know, you shall have another gods before you, before you, and, you know, don't make any idols. I haven't bowed down to any idols lately, and I need to practice the Sabbath, and I've done that, and I need to honor my mom and dad, and I've done that, and, uh, and, you know, I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't murdered. Well, at least uh, I haven't murdered anybody that didn't at least deserve it, because remember, it was Paul, the Apostle Paul. He murdered Christians, and, and yet as he's kind of going through the list, he's feeling pretty good until he begins to look at the very last one on the list. And by the way, anytime you read it and you look at it more as a behavioral modification kind of a list, Jesus corrected that in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember when he said that it says, do not murder, but I say if you hate your brother, if you have malice in your heart, you've murdered him in your heart. Jesus also said, it says, do not commit adultery, but I say, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what is he saying? It's not, it's not just behavior. It's not this list of, of rules that you keep so you can feel better about yourself. It's really more about the attitude of our heart. And this is where the Apostle Paul got nailed, was that he began to really look into his heart, and he realized, wait a minute, I've got all sorts of covetousness in my heart. In fact, let me, let me give you the definition and kind of walk through this covetousness. And, and uh, what does that look like in our lives? Here, here's really the definition of it. It means to inordinately want something. It is wanting anything more than God. This is the essence, really, of all sin, this is the sin below all the other sins. Um, it is saying there is something besides God and his love and his salvation that I've got to have in order to be happy. Uh, in other words, God is, is not enough. That's what covetousness is. It's not loving and resting so much in God that you can be content. If you can't love him enough to be content with what you are and what, what you have and what you are, that is coveting and that is the essence of sin. It is the essence of sin and the essence of really all of my problems. 
In fact, it's interesting, it was not until I really began to study this and understood what Martin Luther had to say about the Ten Commandments is that, that he said, really, that the first commandment, you should have another guys before me, is the root problem of all of the other nine, that you will violate the nine, the other nine of the Ten Commandments in direct proportion to how you've already violated the first one or, or the last one. The last one is covetousness, which are kind of the, the sandwich between, and between that you have all the other commandments. That the reason why we, we sin is always has to do with some form of covetousness. There, there's idolatry, that there's something that we're looking to as our functional Lord and Savior other than God. And see, that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, began to look below the surface of his life and quit just dealing with his behaviors. I know, you're probably thinking, maybe you're in a particular situation that I've heard before. You're saying, wait, 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 Pastor Ray, you, you don't understand my situation. Is that uh, I've been working hard to make ends meet, the economy's down, and my boss told me that if I didn't lie to bring up, you know, bring up what I'm, you know, the sales, I'm going to lose my job. No, no, wait a minute. Uh, and so you're telling me that you couldn't help but lie because you needed to keep your job? No, the reason why you lied is because you don't trust God ultimately to meet your needs. See, whether we lie, cheat, or steal, whatever it is, that's always symptomatic of a much deeper issue in our life is that we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor do we love our neighbor as ourselves. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. The root of all of our issues is always, is always idolatry. Um, next point, the more you are in touch with your sin, your disordered loves, uh, the more you will seek and savor the Savior Jesus. So the more you are in touch with your sin, your disordered loves. And that's really what it is. It's disordered loves. The more you will seek and savor the Savior, Jesus. Look at verse, verse 10. He said, uh, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He, he began to realize, wow, I'm, I'm dead spiritually. Verse 11, sin deceived me and it killed me. Here, here's the... Uh, Here's what I find in my life the closer I get to, to Christ. Um, the more I get to know him and the more I begin to see my own uh, depravity, my own sinfulness, is that it stirs up within me a sense of helplessness, desperation, and longing for him. In fact, I can always tell that people are walking with him as they have this sense of deep desire for God. The reason why you don't have a desire for God is because there's probably pride, you're deceived, you're not living in, in, in touch with your own wickedness and sinfulness this morning. And that's a battle. That's the biggest battle right there, is that your love, your, your, you have given your heart to other lovers, so to speak. And in fact, uh, I like what John Piper says, the primary experience of the Christian is one of helplessness and desperation and longing when a helpless child is being swept off of his feet by the undercurrent on the beach and his father sweeps him up just in time, he doesn't boast, he hugs. And so when you see your true spiritual condition in light of God's holy word, 
and you see the unbelievable provision that Jesus Christ has brought through the cross, you have a sense of wow and mmm. I can't believe he did that for me. He loves me that much. And there's that sense of, oh, rest in him. He forgives me. He loves me. He gives me a new life. Listen to me. No one, no one, no one will ever love you more. No one has ever loved you more than the Lord Jesus Christ. You are doomed to be eternally separated from him because of your sin. The Bible says that's very clear. Well, I don't feel like it. It doesn't matter whether you feel like it or not. You're deceived. That's the battle that goes on within our hearts and lives. And Jesus, out of his love for us, rescued us. He came to this earth on a rescue mission. It is amazing. It is breathtaking. And when you begin to understand that, his love ravishes your heart. See, that's the essence of the, of the Christian life. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, 1 John 3, 1. See, the acid test of those that are living in touch with the reality of God's Word and their true spiritual condition and the amazing provision of God's grace is awe and wonder. It's thankfulness. It's never an attitude of, of entitlement. It's always wonder. It's always wonder. And so, oftentimes, I have to just confess that because I know, that, I know the war going on in my own heart because I have this attitude of entitlement. I think, hey, look at what I've done and look who I am and look what I've accomplished and that pride and, and anger over what's not happening in my life that should be happening and that envy, oh my goodness, oftentimes envy that rules my heart. As I compare myself with others and I look at their lives and I'm thinking, man, I'm more spiritual than them and look what I get. What is up with that? And then my gluttony, instead of going to God, oftentimes I would rather eat it away. <laughs> Are you there? I mean, that's I, my gluttony at times, and then, and then my greed, oh my goodness, that rules my heart, and my slothfulness. Yeah, I, I get busy about the things that I really, really want to get busy about, but there's other things I know that I've neglected in my life, and, and then, of course, lust. Lust, yeah, sometimes, man, I, I look when I shouldn't be looking. That's that war within. And it's all about idolatry. See, here's, here's the interesting thing about idolatry. The reason why, when you go back to Genesis 3, why did Adam and Eve take the fruit? Why did they do that? It always starts with unbelief. They did not believe that, they, they, they believed that God was holding out on them. They didn't believe that he had their best interest at heart. And so we typically will take another path. It always begins in our heart. So if you're already acting it out behaviorally, you already started acting it out attitudinally in your heart a long time ago. Those seeds were planted in your heart. And though nobody knew, you were just kind of playing a game and just showing up and going through the motions. But God knew. God knew your heart. And so that's why you've got to deal with it in your heart. And that's the reason why I so love his grace because I know how wretched I am. I know how desperate I am. 
I know my heart. And as you get in touch with your heart, that's where the battle is. That's what he's talking about. And uh, here's the next point on your notes is that God cannot be eliminated. And this is why the battle cannot be won this side of Christ is because God cannot be eliminated, only replaced. God's substitutes, whether they be religious or irreligious, will control you, inevitably, inevitably destroy you spiritually, emotionally, relationally. Look at, he said in verse 13, he said, sin producing death in me and sinful beyond measure. I mean, he's using some pretty descriptive words there. Now, I can't help but think of a crowd this large, there's people here that don't know Jesus. I'm, I'm glad that you're here. This is a great place for you to kick the tires and to really examine the claims of Jesus Christ. But I'm gonna tell you that though you do not, do not put your faith in Jesus, you do put your faith in something or someone. You have an alternate belief system. Otherwise, you would walk out of here and put a bullet in your head because your life would have no meaning or purpose, but you have meaning and purpose, and it is based on something, and it's something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that's the battle for those of us that do and have committed our life to Christ is constantly walking that out. But you have no choice because, listen to me, every one of us were created as objects of God's love, we were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. There is a God-shaped hole in our soul that only God can fill. And if he doesn't fill it, we will fill it with some other God, a God substitute. We have to, we can't help but fill that hole with something other than God if God is not filling that hole within our soul. And so, that's why it's in not a winnable war. If you do not commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will give your heart to a God. You do have a God. And it's important to kind of understand what that God or who that God might be. Romans 1.25, you've heard me quote it many times before, is that what we do is we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. Now, I was thinking about this, kind of reflecting on it. I'm going to spend a little time on this, and then we'll knock out the rest of this. But I, I want to kind of camp out here just for a moment. I was thinking about adultery. And uh, back in, our, in the seventh year of, of our marriage, my wife and I, uh, I struggled with wanting to commit adultery. I mean, it was one of those, it was just a, it was, uh, it was, the to it was pulling on my heart. I didn't want to have anything to do with my wife at the time. We had some major conflict going on. And uh, as I look back on those days, very treacherous, evil, wicked, difficult days, um, adultery typically, and this is interesting, and I've, I've counseled and been and inter intervened for and confronted people who have committed adultery, and this is typically what they say. When I ask, why would you do that? Why would you abandon your family and your small kids for your secretary or whoever you ran off with or whatever the situation might be? This is what they typically say, is because this person made me feel like a better man or a better woman. What is that saying? It's about you. It's about how you feel. It's, it's self-centered. It's self-absorbed, isn't it? 
And, and, and it's, the fact is, is that don't you, don't you know Jesus? Because if you knew Christ, he would make you feel like a better man or woman beyond any, what anybody could ever do. And really, when you look at sin, all sin is, is actually spiritual adultery, when you think about it. We pursue these other things to get our sense of identity and security and significance from these things. When I do these things, I feel like a better man or a better woman, whatever the case might be. And it's because we're not going to the cross, we're not coming to him, the creator of the universe, and finding his favor upon us, which would actually help us and prevent us from pursuing all these, these other things. And what it is, it becomes a fatal attraction. It's fatal because God's substitutes will, will control you and inevitably destroy you. I mean, it's okay. It's okay to want to have a great career. But when it becomes the ultimate way you feel like a man or a woman, that's a fatal attraction. It's okay to want romance in your life. But if you're saying, I won't be anything unless somebody loves me, God loves you with an everlasting love. Don't you understand that? See, it's not that we want bad things oftentimes. Sometimes they are bad things. But it's not that we want bad things. It's that we want things too badly. See, idolatry is adding anything or anyone to God as a requirement for my happiness, contentment, and completeness. And God's substitutes will, will if, if you fail them, they will never forgive you. And even if you get them, they will never completely satisfy you. Um, I, I kind of went through a, just a short list. I mean, you could work through this list. Substitute gods are fatal attractions that will control you and ultimately destroy you. For instance, what are eating disorders a result of? Eating disorders. Eating disorders, you have offered yourself to the God of thinness. And deep in your heart, you are saying to yourself, if I look like that, I'll feel like a woman or I'll feel like a man. And that's, that's the result of offering yourself to the God of thinness. What about workaholism? When someone does that, they're driven by work, that you are offering yourself to the God of money or status or achievement. What about this one? A cycle of bad, abusive relationships. You can't give up. You find yourself in a cycle of bad relationships. You have made an idol out of male or female affection. See, God's substitutes, when you fail them, can never forgive you. And when you get them, they will never ultimately satisfy you. But when you fail Jesus, he will always forgive you. And when you get him, you will never, ever be more satisfied. Now, let me go back to the adultery thing just for a minute. <clears throat> How many are going through our marriage class currently with the Trucellas? How many? Okay, cool. Excellent. Good job. That's excellent. That's a packed out class, a lot, of, a lot going there. Let me, just, let me talk to those of you that are going through that class and also everybody that's here and as it relates to my own life. If I were to have committed adultery, it was not my wife's, it was not my wife's fault because she didn't make me feel like a man. And now that I've found someone that makes me feel like a man, that's bogus. <laughs> that's crazy. You know that? 
It's not her job to make me feel like a man. Did you know that? It's not. And even if she did, that would be a, a void within me that ultimately she could probably never fill. And, and you get into this vicious cycle. And she has responsibilities and roles. But I was there, there for a while. I was looking to her to do what ultimately I needed to find in Christ. My sense of identity, my sense of security, my sense of feeling like a man had to come from the cross and who I am in Jesus Christ. And it always has. And then out of that becomes the overflow of how I need to respond to my wife, regardless of what goes down in my life. Regardless. But too often, the reason why our hearts are drawn astray and away in relationships is because of, because of the fact that we, committed, that we have committed spiritual adultery first and foremost. You know, when you read Psalm 51, David committed adultery and then murder, tried to cover it up, did some pretty crazy things. But he says in that, as he's repenting, he realizes against you, against you alone have I sinned. Wait, wait, no, you sinned against all these people. No, he realized that all of his sin was ultimately he walked away from God before he began to do all these other things. That was all symptomatic. His adultery and his murder and those things were all symptomatic of his idolatry. And there's a place in Psalm 51 where he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Isn't that interesting? Some people would say, well, when he sinned, he lost the joy of his salvation. That's not true. That's not true. He sinned because he had already lost the joy of his salvation. When you lose the joy of your salvation, that's when you're going to sin. When you lose the fact that only Christ can ultimately satisfy your deepest needs, that's when you're going to go south. So it always comes back to the battle is, will Christ be the passion, the purpose, the pursuit of my life, him and him alone, and do I go to him regularly to meet my deepest needs? That's where the battle is. There's a movie clip I'm going to show you here. It's from uh, the movie Peaceful Warrior. Interesting movie. It's kind of an uh, independent movie, and uh, it's, a, it's a weird movie. It's got a lot of New Age stuff in there, some weird stuff in there, and I think that they've hijacked some biblical principles you know, in this movie, certainly. But it's about a young man who his identity was wrapped up in winning a gold medal in the Olympics, that he just, that was what he was driven to do. He's pretty arrogant, full of himself, and he has a career-ending injury that incapacitates him. And in this scene, he's battling with himself. There's this war taking place, and I wanted us to watch this and kind of get a sense of that, and then we're going to move on and talk about how we make this transition from the battle before Christ to the battle after Christ. Watch this. What do you want? I didn't come here to stop you. You think I won't do it? Because I'm not afraid of anything. Not even this. 
Nothing you haven't already lost? What are you holding on to in your way? It's you, isn't it? You're the one I have to let go of. You know what you're doing? No. Do you know who you are without me? No. Then what are you doing? <laughs> Interesting clip, isn't it, to say the least? So, do you hear what he was saying? Do you know who you are? He's having a, a crisis of identity because it was so wrapped up in his performance uh, when, it, you know, being a gold medal contender uh, in gymnastics. And so, he's struggling with that. That's, that's the struggle. Where are you going to get your identity from? Now, how do we make the transition? How do we make the transition? This is verses 1 through 6. We are no longer married to the law as a means of salvation. That's what we learned from verses 1 through 6. He says, we do not, basically what he was telling us there is that we're not getting our identity anymore from our performance plus the approval of those who we admire. Right standing with God is not achieved or earned but received and embraced. And the Bible says that over and over again. Romans six fourteen. we're no longer under law but under grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Next point, this is a big one. Covenant relationship is the only way to be accepted and have access to God. You'll notice he uses this imagery of, of marriage and adultery. And uh, in, in verses 2 through 3, and, and, and the Bible gives us this whole idea about our relationship with God, this covenant relationship. Let me give you uh, the definition for covenant relationship. This is from Tim Keller. Covenant relationship is a stunning blend of love and law. It's a relationship more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, yet more binding and enduring and accountable than a merely personal 
relationship. And to really understand covenant relationship, you need to contrast that with consumer relationship, which which is prevalent in our society today. Let me give you the the idea of consumer. Consumer relationship sounds like this. I will love you if and to the degree you meet the standards, the standards of the law, whatever the standards are, and if you don't, I'm out of here. In other words, consumer relationship is my needs are more important than the relationship. Now, it's totally appropriate to have consumer relationships in certain aspects of our life, for instance, with our grocer. That would be appropriate because when the prices get too high and the quality drops, I'm going to find another grocer because uh, it's not about the relationship. It's about, it's about my needs. But, but what has happened is that that kind of mindset has permeated marriages, homes, businesses, friendships, and even especially the church. The people don't like something here, they're going to go to the church down the street. And we, we have that happen all the time. People hop, hop from one church to the next. People even leave desert breeze oftentimes without even, even a second thought. And oftentimes I don't know about it until later on. I go, whatever happened to, nobody ever talks or communicates, nobody ever says anything. And it's really quite interesting and it's very much a consumer world that we live in. Here's what a covenant relationship sounds like in contrast to this consumer. I will love you, and keep in mind as marriage being the reenactment of this, I will love you not because you meet the standards of the law, because you're lovable, but in order for you to meet the standards of the law so that you can become lovable. I mean, isn't that the kind of relationship that Christ has with us? Absolutely. The relationship is more important than my needs, And so the only way that we can really relate to God is through covenant relationship. Now, let me ask you this question as it relates to this, because this should immediately bring a dilemma. We've discussed this probably within the last couple years. We talked about this. So does that make the blessings of God, are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Because look at verse 7. He says something here in verse 7. He says, well, what what then shall we say, that the law is sin? I mean, so there's this dilemma. So if I'm no longer saved by the law as a means of, you know, of salvation, then, then what's the law? Is the law that not that big of a deal? You know, are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? And there's a couple different perspectives that we can take. We can take a liberal view, which we see uh, in, in many churches today. Yes, you should obey But in the end, God loves everybody and will accept everybody. Love is absolute. Love is is reality, but law law is relative. And by the way, part of the dilemma of this is that when you study through Scripture, you will actually come across verses such as Judges 2.1 where it says, I will never break my covenant with you. That's God speaking to us. And then you come across verses such as Exodus 19.5 where it says, if you... If you don't obey, if you obey, you will be my treasure. But if you don't, you won't be my treasure. So what's up with that? I mean, it, it kind of takes you back and forth between, so we need to obey, and yet, and, and yet it says, and yet he said he will never leave us or forsake us. Well, which one is it? And so you got the liberal view, which is, has that mindset of it being unconditional, it's relativism. This was the Sadducees of Jesus' day. And then you got this kind of legalistic, more hyper-conservative view. Yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you've got to be good or he won't love you. Law is reality and love is secondary, and this is more of this conditional kind of relationship. It's moralism, it's what the Pharisees were all about. 
So let me ask you this. Those of you that know the answer to this, are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? What's the answer? Yes, both. The answer is yes, it's both. In fact, here's the answer. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ absolutely fulfilled the conditions of the law so that God could love you absolutely unconditionally. And this is what's so breathtaking about covenant. Because listen to me, every other belief system in our society today is works righteousness. Only Christianity is based on faith and based on covenant relationship. Every other major religion of our world today says, you better live up to the standard or you're not getting in. But through Christ, Christ says, you know what? You don't have the ability to get in, but I'm going to love you. And I'm going to reach out to you. And I'm going to bring you in and bring you into an environment that will bring change to your life. See, that's covenant love. Covenant love. So here's the end. When you become a Christian... You are now married to Christ. That was the idea of verses 1 through 6. We're not married to the law. So our identity doesn't come from the law, but it comes from Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for us. So when you become a Christian, you are now married to Christ, and the law is a means of pleasing your spouse. He said in verse 12, the law is holy and righteous and good. And we'll talk more about the law next week. You fall into the arms, into God's arms, and the law is the way in which you nurture love, reflect love, and show your love for God. It goes back to verse 6. Let me read verse 6. I told you this was a pivotal verse. But now, maybe you will understand it more clearly, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He accepts me just as I am, and he loves me, and that's what begins to transform my life. And I put my faith, I put my faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law is important. How do I know the law is important? Because it was so important that my violation of it sent Jesus to the cross. It sent Jesus to the cross. So it's really important, but I don't do it. I don't obey him to get his blessing. I have his blessing, therefore I obey him. So here's what the preoccupation of your life should be. Not obedience, but his grace, and out of his grace will come your obedience. Does that make sense? Now let me end with a quick story here. This is... uh, it's, it's, it's so phenomenal. And a lot of times people think, they think the, the, the Bible somehow is divided up into Old Testament people that were saved by works. And so we're in New Testament, we're saved by grace. That's not true. All you have to do is read uh, Genesis chapter 4 and uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It talks about the Old Testament uh, crowd was saved by faith just as we are. They looked ahead, we look back. But case in point, Genesis 15, it's a phenomenal story. I would encourage you to read it later on today. But this is... This is our, the father of our faith. Who's the father of our faith? Abraham. Abraham. And the father of our faith was one jacked up dude, okay? He was messed up. He tried to pimp out his wife a couple different times. I mean, it's crazy when you read the story. You think it's from a Jerry Springer show or something. You go, this guy is messed up. And yet in the 15th chapter, he comes back after rescuing his nephew, Lot. I think he's a bit intimidated because he's thinking he's gonna be re- uh, they're going to uh, retaliate on him, these kings, nations that are coming against him. And so he's a bit intimidated. He remembers the promise. God said, I promise I will bless you. And not only will I bless you, but you will be a blessing to the nations. And he's beginning to doubt it. 
God shows up, speaks to him, and God begins to cut a covenant, what, what is what they did in these oral uh, sort of cultures where there was a lot of storytelling that they would actually act out their contracts. And so God had Abraham cut an animal for a sacrifice in, in a, right in pieces and then separate the pieces and, and have kind of an aisle down the pieces. And this is what they would do when they would cut a contract or cut a covenant is that in this day when there was an agreement, they would act out the curse if there was a violation. If, if anyone violated and didn't keep the demands of that agreement, and in essence, when they walked between the pieces, they were saying, if I do not keep the demands of this, of this contract, may what has happened to this animal happen to me. May I be torn to shreds. And here's what's interesting about this story is that typically in these days that peasants would walk between the pieces. Kings never had to prove anything, so they typically wouldn't. But guess who walked between the pieces and who didn't walk between the pieces in Genesis 15? God walked between the pieces, and Abraham never did walk between the pieces. And this is what God is saying. This is my covenant with you, Abraham, that if I violate the terms of this covenant, may I be torn to pieces. And even if you violate the terms of this covenant, May I be torn to pieces. And thousands of years later, that's exactly what happened. He was torn to pieces for you and I. The thorns on his head, nails in his hands and feet, the sword in his side. And he, that's how much he loves us, that he died on the cross to meet the demands of this covenant. He loves us just the way we are. That is so breathtaking. That is amazing. Three things that will happen to you if you really begin to understand that and believe that. There will be this paradoxical obedience. You will avoid sin like crazy, but when you sin, you're not going to be thrown into condemnation or despair. You get back up and keep heading in that direction. The second thing is that you begin to trust him like you've never trusted him before because if he would go, if he would go to the cross for you, won't he take care of all your other issues? Absolutely. Here's the third thing, is there's no more playing around in marriage and in parenting and even in a church setting that you begin to understand what covenant is about and you no longer attend church as a consumer. You begin to step up and take responsibility and you begin to cultivate covenant relationship even within a church family. And so that's important. Last point on your notes, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Stand with me for closing prayer. Next week we look at this, this war after we have made a commitment of our life to Jesus Christ. And sometimes the war is even more fierce. So we'll look at that next week, the second part of this, uh, this chapter. God, we are, we are amazed. We are blown away at your, your covenant love that you indeed will never leave us or forsake us. Not based on our not based on our obedience, but based on what you've done on the cross for us. And that makes us want to obey you and follow you and live our lives for you all that much more. So God, help us to do that. Help us to live our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.